And we're going to begin reading again from Revelation chapter 4, the first verse. So we're looking again, this majestic uh, vision uh, the Apostle John has over two chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5. We're going to, uh, to look at that again. There's some more for us to get hold of in those two chapters. So fasten your seatbelts again because we will read through both chapters together just to remind ourselves of this uh, vision that John has, which is, uh, is breathtaking really. Let's get, our, let's, let's get into it. Revelation 4 verse 1. After this, I looked and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I'd heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center, around the throne, were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face of a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory, honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. And then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaim in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then... One of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang 
a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. The elders fell down and worshipped. And I think we can say Amen as well. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. It's been personally so exciting to spend time uh, looking at these two chapters of the Bible in particular. And I've mentioned before that one commentator writes, no part of scripture is more calculated to evoke worship than these two chapters of John's prophecy. And that's why it would seem fitting to spend another week uh, looking at these two chapters. Uh, You might think, well, why is that? What are we going to look at this time that we haven't already looked at? Because a few weeks ago, we focused on chapter 4, and then we went on from there. We looked at chapter chapter 5. Surely now the time would be to look on uh, to chapter 6, and maybe I'm just trying to buy myself a little bit more time before we get to that one. But there's a good reason for us to stay here again, and maybe I can put it in this way. When we looked in chapter 4, the focus of chapter 4 was the throne in heaven. And everything is centered around the throne. And John sees the one who is seated on the throne. The God who is in control of absolutely everything. And we could put it in this way. We're seeing there God the Father on the throne. We looked at then chapter 5. And we see kind of this crisis point develop as no one is found worthy to take and open the scroll. And this big universal search takes place, but no one is found. And John weeps and weeps, and we looked at that. But then the elder says, hang on a minute. One has been found who is worthy to bring about the fullness of God's plans for the entire universe. See the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lion and the lamb, our Messiah, the Savior who died and who rose again, who's now seated on high with God, God the Son, God the Father and God the Son. But these chapters also reveal to us something of God the Holy Spirit. We, we see these intriguing references, uh, one in chapter 4 and verse Five. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumbling and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. The seven spirits of God, we've seen that phrase before right at the outset of the book, but it sounds a little bit peculiar. It's probably most helpfully understood as talking about the Holy Spirit, who is not, in a sense, seven spirits. It's the sevenfold spirit of God. And seven kind of signifies total, complete And so there's the fullness of the activity and the presence of the Holy Spirit in this vision. And there are these, therefore, these seven lamps that are blazing light close to the throne, close to the throne of God and shedding light. 
to all then that John sees. And we see another reference in chapter 5 and in verse uh, in verse 6 or partway through verse 6 when we have the description of the lamb, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. We know that Jesus died on the cross. Three days later, he rose to life again, victorious, conquering sin, conquering death. He spent around 40 days with his disciples, then he ascended to heaven, to the right hand of God. And when he got there, he had the authority to then send the Spirit of God. And we see what happens on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit comes to uh, downtrodden and anxious believers. The Spirit of God comes upon them. Uh, We'll we'll look at that a bit more in a moment. Um, But what's begun there is this new age, this new age of the Spirit. And the fact that John, the apostle here, so many years after those events, around the original Easter weekend, could experience this vision is because of the activity and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Jesus on the throne, the Lion and the Lamb, sent the Spirit out into all the world. And here we have John, around AD 95, on a small forgotten island somewhere. He is in the Spirit. Chapter 4, verse 2, at once I was in the Spirit, it says. And we are to, to help us and to evoke our worship, we're going to spend some time thinking about what does it mean to be in the Spirit, and then what's the result of being in the Spirit? And what does it mean to be in the Spirit? We have a difficulty because, as is true of Christians and is as true of our culture, we can fall into the trap of jargon. Jargon are basically meaningless phrases or phrases with dubious meaning We know when to use them, but we don't really almost know why we're using them. So, for an example, Bob's your uncle. Who here has an uncle called Bob? Raise your hand. We have two, three, four, five. Okay, so to five people in this room, we could really say, Bob is your uncle. Otherwise, what what is that talking about? It's just bizarre. Sometimes we'll use kind of very dramatic language. Um, you know, so to say that I'm really happy, I was over the moon. If I'm really, really, really happy, I might say, literally, I was over the moon. <laughs> well, no, really, I'm pretty sure, along with the majority of humanity, you've never been over the moon. Um, that is just an odd way of thinking. My personal favorite is someone comes to you and says, how are you doing? And you say, you know, as accurately as you feel, uh, sensing, uh, you know, the social moment, you say, I'm fine, thank you. But they don't believe you. And so they come in for the kill and they say, how are you in yourself? How are you in yourself? Uh, I think that's Peter Kay's favorite. How are you in yourself? What does that mean? I don't think I've ever been out of myself to know what the difference is between feeling in myself and out of myself. What they mean is, you've said you're fine, but I don't believe you. And so I want you to tell me now the honest answer. How are you in yourself? Just bizarre phrases, jargon. So here we meet the phrase, in the spirit. Is this jargon? Is this a Christian way of saying something a bit fluffy? Now, first of all then, in order to understand this phrase, in the spirit, we need to look at what it does not mean. It is not jargon. It could be understood and sometimes might be used in the way of just saying, 
it's, a, it's an expression, it's jargon, really just to say, I was having a good time. I was having a good time. I was in the spirit. Um, but it might not mean that. Um, sometimes, deliberately or semi-deliberately, there can be a problem that even environmental factors, music, lighting, smoke machines, other things, uh, special tones of voice can be used. And um, not necessarily deliberately, but sometimes there can be an element of low-level manipulation about that. Oh, and some people lay the charge of emotionalism. You're just being, you're just getting, leading us into emotionalism. This is, this is hype. Well, this is not what John is talking about. I was in the spirit. It's likely to be the case that he was in a prison in Patmos. And I think when he was introduced to his cell, he, he probably didn't come into plush carpets and nice background music and someone just saying over the microphone, God's here. God's here. It's like, no, he's, He's in a cell. There's no natural reason why he should be in a good mood right now. He's effectively exiled away from God's people and being punished for his faith. So this is not emotionism. I was in the spirit. I was having a great time. What? The guy's in prison. The guy's not experiencing the easiest time right now. So it's not emotionism. It's not about personality. Sometimes in the spirit can almost be a way of describing other people um, and maybe you can identify them, or maybe you are one yourself, who is just a little bit wacky. It's a little bit on the strange side. Um, and so they do stuff, and you know, the Spirit comes upon some of us, and, and basically we're, we're kind of calm. Uh, we're still kind of, there's a sense of peace. For some, the Holy Spirit comes on them, and they're weird, and they're loud and boisterous, and maybe just naturally, in personality, they're kind of, Loud, gregarious people, the life and the soul of the party. Well, is, is that what this phrase means? In the spirit is another way of saying, John was an extrovert. John was gregarious. John was a little bit crazy. A little bit way, a little bit woo. Is that what it means? Which wouldn't be that encouraging for those of us who don't feel we share the same personality type particularly. It doesn't mean that. When the spirit of God came, On the day of Pentecost, um, Peter gives an explanation to the crowd of what is happening. And so he stands up and he says, fellow Jews, um, Acts 2, uh, verse 14, fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. What you might not realize is they are a group of extroverts. And what they are doing right now is externally processing because that's what extroverts do. They just talk and they're loud. Is that what in the spirit means? No. It's not what it means either. Now, also, in the spirit does not mean it's not an alternative to being in the word. And there can be a false dichotomy, there can be a false way of seeing things. We can sometimes that can be presented as options. Okay, you've just got saved. Uh, you're a Christian, new Christian. You have the choice now. Are you going to be a Christian who is in the Word? Um, You're good at thinking. You like reading. You have books. You debate. You find what the original word in Greek means and you want to let other people know. You like being in the Word. And some people might question your social skills, but that's a bit unfair. You're just a Christian who's in the Word. Or are you 
a Christian, sorry, I hope it isn't too close to the bone. Are you a Christian on the other hand? And uh, you decided not to go in that direction. Instead, you chose the path of in the spirit. And um, and so you you aren't great, you aren't great at thinking. You're <laughs> you're you're emotionally intelligent. Okay, not so academically, but you're intuitive. You understand people, and you sense things, and you intuit things, and you are are. You're, uh, you're a feelings-based person. You sense the moment and what's going on, but you're not into all this theology and doctrine. You get a little bit irritated when you know, the, the Christian who's in the Word comes along and tries to get you to cross all your T's and dot your I's because you're saying things that are slightly flaky. Um, Someone who, in, now please don't hear me, I'm not saying that's what being in the Spirit is and that's what being in the Word is. I'm just painting a picture which is not what uh, this means. But if someone goes down that line, honestly going down this line of I'm in the Spirit, I'm not into the Word. That's tremendously dangerous. In fact, there's dangers both ways. But, well, if you're just kind of going with your feelings all the time, sensing the moment, always able to say what God is saying... But you've ne- you're not prepared, you know, we're not prepared to do the hard graft as well of digging into the Word of God to see that does what I'm hearing and feeling match up with what the Word of God says over here? It's an incredibly dangerous place to be. I know, I'm, I'm not bothered with all of that stuff. I'm just in the Spirit. Well, okay, but what, what Spirit are you in? Are you just paying attention to your own Spirit, your own feelings? Or is it even worse than that? Paul writes to Timothy... In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 1, and says, The Spirit clearly says that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Got to be careful that we're not kind of making some weird choice. I'm in the Word. Well, hang on a minute. There's more to life than that, as we're seeing right here in the Scripture. Oh, I'm just in the Spirit. Well, that only makes sense if you understand the two together. It's like a marriage. When a husband and wife get married, they are, they become, biblically, one flesh. Kind of one unit. There's still kind of distinctions between them. I think Alistair and Hannah just, are just in the process of celebrating their fifth wedding anniversary. A few seats along from them, Simon Beth, who are recently celebrated their 25th uh, wedding anniversary. Congratulations again to you all, by the way. But... Um, when, when someone, when two people marry, um, what it says in the scripture and what we often say as well is what God has joined together, let man not separate. Let's not try and separate these things out, word and spirit. Let's not try and separate people who are married. You can think, well, yeah, there's distinctive qualities to both Alistair and Hannah, but actually they're, <laughs> I didn't know I was going to pick on you, did you? Um, but actually there's, they're together. You can't really separate them. Um, and they are a, a couple who are tremendously together on things. And I think, oh, no, we don't, we don't separate out married couples. It's like, yeah, Alistair and Hannah, Simon and Beth. There's distinctions, but they're together and we don't separate. And so the word and the spirit together, what God has joined together, we don't pick and choose. We don't go in one direction only, as it were. We don't kind of divorce them. <laughs> And, uh, and make them into uh, polar opposites that don't connect. 
John was both. Okay. John was in the Word and he was in the Spirit. We read, as we're reading through the book of Revelation, it becomes abundantly clear he knows a lot of Old Testament. He really is in the Word because outflowing from everything that he says, so many references to Old Testament scriptures. And not only that, but he's written much of the New Testament himself. A whole gospel account, a number of letters, and this book here at the very end of the Bible, Revelation. He's a man who's in the Word. He's, he's good with his head. But he's not only going in that direction. He's not misunderstood Word and Spirit. He's understood Word and Spirit are together. So here he is, and he says, at once um, I was in the Spirit, not an alternative to being in the Word. So what is being in the Spirit? Well, what's talking of here is a special experience. Interestingly, it's not a constant experience, because after this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. The voice I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place. At once, I was then in the Spirit. He's talking about a particular experience, not necessarily his ongoing, completely constant experience. Now, he's always a child of God. He's always a temple of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is in him. That's fact. That's truth. But there are special times of experiencing the Spirit. And the Spirit brings a heightened sense of God's presence. And at this moment, he's more aware than just his own natural senses or thoughts would bring him. He's, a, he's aware of something. He receives a vision, seeing unseen spiritual realities because the Spirit of God is revealing them to him in this special moment. So a special experience, but not a constant experience. A special experience, but not a rare one either. There's a number of times in the book of Revelation he makes this kind of Statement, and we saw one earlier on in, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 10. On the Lord's day, I was on the Spirit. Implication, there are other times when I'm not experiencing being in the Spirit. I'm still God's child. I'm still secure. I still know Him. I'm still in love with Him. I still worship Him. But there are these certain times of really knowing the Spirit's closeness. That's what He's talking about. But for Him, it's not a rare occasion. He mentions it a whole number of times in this book. And presumably, the people to whom he's writing understand what he means. Because he doesn't write some big long explanation of what it means. They presumably also have experiences of what it is to be in the Spirit. Hopefully that's the case for us too. We know something of what it is to be in the Spirit. I tell you, it's so important that we know something of this. And when when Paul writes to the Ephesians, he encourages them with the truth of the gospel. He wants to um, kind of instruct them and help them. And he says something interesting on this point. Um, in Ephesians 6, verse 18, he writes, And pray in the Spirit on all occasions, with all kinds of prayers and requests. Uh, and with this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. He's particularly encouraging and instructing us to, to pray in the Spirit, to pray with an awareness of the presence and the activity of the Spirit and to be led by the Spirit. And the same also happens not only in our prayer life, um, but in worship um, worship also. 
And so in John chapter 4, Jesus speaks to a woman at the well and speaks to her about the day coming and has now come when the worshippers of God will worship in what? In spirit and in truth. Not in spirit or in truth. In spirit and in truth. Those are the worshippers that God is looking for. It's not about going to now a specific location. It must be Jerusalem or it must be this place over here. No, those who worship in uh, worshiping God are those true worshippers who are in spirit and truth. John could not get to Jerusalem right now. He's on the island of Patmos, but he knows something of the presence of God by the Spirit. And in these ways, we can find, either in prayer or in worship, that we start with our own thoughts, our own ideas, our own efforts in some way, but there comes a point, a special point, when the Spirit of God just takes us up and beyond that. And it's the Spirit of God revealing something of Jesus to us as we worship, as we pray. We might find in terms of prayer that we start with what we want to pray for, what we want to see happen. But as we do so, and as we give ourselves to praying, we find, oh, it's as if my prayers have just been tweaked. I wasn't expecting this to happen, but God is just redirecting me now. And I find myself praying for this, or I find myself praying in a new way, or I find myself um, praying for something that hadn't crossed my mind whatsoever. Well, why was that? Was that the Spirit of God just coming to you, bringing an increased sense of His presence? So that's great what you've been praying. Now, let me just lead you. Let me just guide you by the hand. Let me take you over here. I want to show you something in worship. I want to show you something more of Jesus. You, you know him. You love him. Have you considered this? And the Spirit takes us on. And, well, so that's what it means to be in the Spirit. Now, what we see in these visions and elsewhere in Scripture as well is what is the outworking of being in the Spirit? And what do we see when we're in the Spirit? Um, and what happens throughout verse 4? Uh, chapters 4 and 5 is a whole lot of singing. Worship is evoked in heaven. In heaven, there is no um, distraction. There's nothing that should kind of mean that our eyes need to be opened, as it were. And so these living creatures and John um, beholding the one who's on the throne, they are completely fixed on him in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And there's a whole load of singing. Um, Heaven is obsessed with God and his glory. And so we have these five songs that are equally, all all equally Godward. Their direction is God. They are talking about you, God. They're not talking about me or I particularly. Um, They are focused on God. These are songs that are deep, that are varied, that are rich, that are loud, that are vibrant, that are joyful, that they're corporate because more and more angels are joining in with kind of heaven's anthem. They're joining together. They're united in singing praise to God. These angels have not been told, come on, sing it like you mean it, which is the most hideous exhortation anyone could ever give. You think, oh, that's horrific. Um, they didn't, that, that wasn't happening here. Why? Well, because they've seen something. In the presence of the Holy Spirit, they've seen God. They've seen the throne. They've seen the scroll. They've seen the Lamb take the scroll. And what happens is, there's just rich 
singing. It's the same for us. Being in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit leads us into singing. He, he leads us into worship. That response to truth. The Holy Spirit highlights truth. Our response just needs to well up in, in praise and worship joyful songs. And just going back to Acts 2, we, we, we saw something of that, or we see something of that. On the day the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, we see uh, what's happening there. And in verse, um, in verse 4, for example, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Actually, uh, that tongues are involved. That doesn't mean that uh, they're always involved in worship, but here they are. And then we look further on in verse 11. We find out what's going on a little bit more um, because it says there, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. And so the Spirit of God happen, uh, comes upon people. What do those people start to do? What can they not stop doing? What comes out of their heart supernaturally and can't be repressed? They're declaring the wonders of God. Why? Because they're in the Spirit. And again, going to Ephesians, we see the same uh, truth there as, uh, as Paul writes in, uh, in chapter in chapter 5, it says, don't get drunk on wine, verse 18, uh, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speak to one another. Or another way of saying it is, instead, go on being filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making music in your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks uh, to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what happens there? Being filled with the Spirit straight away, Again, there's this variety of deep praise that comes out in singing, singing to one another as we sing to God. There's singing, but it comes on the basis of what we see. And here in Revelation, the singing is the response. Heaven is seeing something. John, in the Spirit, is getting to join in. And now we, reading this scripture too, are able to see and that we're invited in as well. So then the question is, what did they see? What was the Spirit of God revealing that then led to this worship, led to this singing? What are they seeing? Do we see the same things? What are our experiences of being in the Spirit. What's our understanding of being in the Spirit? What are, what are we expecting in the Christian life? What are we looking forward to when we get together? I hope it's being in the Spirit. But then the question comes, well, what, what are we seeing then? Are we seeing what heaven sees? We get to see what heaven sees because of these five wonderful songs. Uh, we've looked at them a, uh, a little bit before. We're going to just touch on them again now. Firstly, the song that comes in chapter 4, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What are the angels seeing? They're seeing something of, the, of God's character. The good, holy, powerful character of God. They're seeing that he's the one who was. Here's the God who has always existed. Here's the God, therefore, who does not need anything. 
He's not served by human hands as though he needs anything. He's the one who was and is and is to come, which is interesting because we might expect it to say he always will be. Here the focus is God's character, but there's this other hint. God's character and he's going to come again. God's character, awesome and good, and he's going to come. And he's going to bring all of history to a conclusion as we get to see later on as well. And these angels are worshipping constantly. So there's the first song, God's character and his coming. The second song takes us into slightly new territory. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honour and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. What's the focus of this song? What is taking us on into new territory? It's saying, the focus here, God's creation. Not that the creation is what is getting worshipped. God is being worshipped because they've seen something. I think there is the God. You're the Lord on the throne who created absolutely everything. The largest, most majestic, blazing star in the universe. God created it. And it wasn't difficult for God to make it. God designed it. He spoke. The star obeyed and existed. A star that dwarfs our own star. It's that big. Our own star that dwarfs our own planet. Our own planet that dwarfs our own nation. Our own nation that dwarfs me. God created absolutely everything. The greatest thing. But he created the smallest thing as well. The smallest particle that's in here somewhere. God designed. God created. That's what it's got stamped on it. Made by God. Designed by God. Created by God. How amazing is the fact that God created absolutely everything. So we don't worship creation. But when we see creation, or when we experience, when we hear something, we think, oh, that's amazing. Maybe when we taste something, we think, oh, that, that's just so good. We're not worshipping what we eat. We're not worshipping what we hear. We're not worshipping what we touch. But we experience, we see something, we catch a glimpse of something that God has created. And that should turn our hearts. That should lead our hearts to worship. It's amazing. God's creation. And God is in control. There you go. The focus of the second song. The third song. Here we come to the centerpiece, as it were. Special attention is, is worthy in this third song. Because in the third song, here is what heaven sees. God's crucifixion. The God of infinitely pure and powerful character. The God who created the largest star easily and the smallest particle, designing everything in between, is the God who stepped down. Is the God who went to the cross. Is the Lamb who was led silently to the slaughter. He was slain. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. Here is the centerpiece. Here is the preoccupation of every spirit-filled believer. The cross. We marvel at it. We wonder at it. If we are honest, we should be terrified at it. Because what was necessary there, 
for God the Son to experience on account of my sin. It leads us to worship. And worship leaders, uh, maybe you lead worship meetings like today, maybe in core groups, maybe you aspire to lead worship and you jump at the chance if God led in that direction. Well, take note of what's happening here in here. There's variety, there's breadth, there's depth. The songs, they speak of God's character. It's interesting, we, we start with a song which is profound, but it's not complicated. Uh, and I think that's a helpful one to bear in mind that I'll just throw in there. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We're off and running. And it's okay. We, we see majestic things in creation. Well, we, they lead us to worship. But where's the centerpiece? Where are we headed in our time of worship? Where do we want to arrive? Surely we want to arrive at this center ground, this place right here in the middle of the action, the third of the five songs. God was crucified for me. But do we see it? Do new songs, as they do for those angels, well up in us? What's happened here? The cross of Christ is worthy of fresh and creative, uh, new and united songs. Songs that haven't been sung before. The Spirit of God comes upon people and he unleashes creativity. And songwriting. And we can believe for God doing that as he has done already amongst us. A new new way of this, of 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 expressing wonderful truth that's right here. But there's something else, something else in that song. Focus God's crucifixion, and that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. The Holy Spirit wants to put attention onto Jesus. He wants to put a spotlight onto the cross. And sometimes when we think of the Holy Spirit, we can, we can jump too soon to saying, fill me up, Lord. Fill me up, fill me up. We need to get to that point. But actually, the Spirit of God is so pleased to worship Jesus. Hey, why don't we just worship Jesus? And I think the Spirit of God is going to do some filling as we do that. The Spirit of God longs to bring attention to the cross. But there's something else in this song. Do you see it? Because what heaven is seeing is the church. Jesus in his passion, he gave himself up for her church. And so we see here, you were slain with your blood. You've purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. That's what God has always intended to do. The cross leads us to also actually the church. Again, we don't worship the church, but Actually, do we see what's happening here? There are angels that long to look in to what God has done, what God has achieved. And what God was wanting to achieve was to win for himself a bride, the church. Do we see it? Heaven is getting excited right now. Jesus was passionate for his bride. Are we joining in with that passion are we seeing the church as something to, to join and belong to and get excited by? Are we seeing the church as sometimes something that, see, that enjoy actually leads us to changing our priorities? Well, I used to love this. I used to love getting involved in that. But actually, I've seen something better now. And it's not, you mustn't do that. It's that, look, there's something better. But actually, do you see it? This, this is what the Spirit of God is revealing. But do we 
do we see it? Is that something that we are excited by or is it just something we can always see the problems with? And so we kind of got a tendency to, to criticize or to grumble or to complain. Well, that's not been done very well, has it? And what you should have heard what she just said or how they've handled this situation. Sometimes people can look at the church and just see problems. And it is a work in progress here on the earth right now. There is no perfect church. We saw that in the earlier chapters. And if we joined a perfect church, we'd ruin it, as the cliche goes. Um, there is no perfect church. We're not having to be unreal here. But by the Spirit, we see, wow, it's a work in progress. But it's a beautiful work in progress. And she's not quite ready yet. But even now I can see she is stunning. And heaven sees this. And the Spirit of God wants to reveal it. Is that something that we see? Is that something that excites us as well? The fourth and fifth song, in a sense, are this overflow of response. We see almost Christ's complete worth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. We looked before those seven phrases. We see four qualities that God possesses. Power, wealth, wisdom, and strength. And we see three attitudes of which he is worthy to receive from us. Honor and glory and praise. And then we see in that fifth song, the fifth song is fascinating. In the fifth song, we're looking right into the future. And the Spirit of God reveals the things that are to come. We see every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that's in them singing. I don't think on the earth we've yet seen that happen. I think that's looking forward to this great and majestic day when God, the one who's in control and who's coming again, will completely wrap up his kingdom, will completely wrap up and complete world history, and what happens is universal worship, seeing things to come. So what this, these two chapters are evoking our worship. We are invited into the same thing. There is so much to worship God for and there is so much to be excited by. And the Spirit is inviting us into heavenly worship, not just vague appreciation. The question I asked earlier on is, is that what we're seeing? Are we, are we seeing these things? Are we excited by these things? Has the Spirit of God actually got our attention or is our appreciation vague? I have or I had a, a vague appreciation for what some people achieved in the Olympics. And you could quick, you know, see a highlight, certain race or a certain event, and see really impressive um, feats of athleticism and fitness. And I'd go, wow, that's, that's great. Uh, I wonder what's on next. Um, but then when you find out a little bit more, your appreciation grows. And my appreciation grew, has grown for Mo Farah. Uh, the first British guy to win a gold medal in those long-distance races in the stadium. And he doesn't just win one, he wins two. Uh, so he wins the, the 10,000 metres first, and he wins the 5,000 metres. And you see him do the last lap, and you think, that's really quite impressive. And I saw that, I think, congratulations to you, Mo. Um, but at that point, still my appreciation, well, that's quite vague. And I kind of think, well, what's... 
What's happening next, I wonder? I just kind of got to know a few other facts. I got to know a little bit more about Mo. I found out a little bit more about his training regime and the sacrifices he's made and the time away from family and the attention to detail. And I, I, I read something that was suggested that he'd, he'd just won a race a few months ago in Crystal Palace in a, in a, uh, in a race taking place there, 5,000 metres or whatever. And there's just a couple of journalists left in the stadium approaching midnight. The crowds have disappeared. Earlier on, he's raced and he's won. You would think that was the time to put his feet up, but actually, he's still racing. Uh, he's still training, pounding the track close to midnight. There's no crowd applauding them. There's just his coach with a watch. Wow. That's impressive. And you go back four years and you realize, actually, this guy didn't even make it to the final of those events four years ago in Beijing. And 16 years ago before that, actually, he was just arriving as an asylum seeker into this country, and his dad told him two phrases for, to help him at school. Where's the toilet? And come on then. But he said the wrong one to the wrong person, and so got a beating uh, on his first day at school as a nine-year-old in a foreign country. Think, oh, my word. How far has that guy come? I think my appreciation grows. But that's just an athlete. Now what would this celebration be like? Having got to know a little bit more about Mo, if actually I was related to him, if he was my brother or my dad, if he he were related to Mo, sometimes you see... The, the, the camera panned across the crowd and everyone's celebrating. Yeah, waving the flag and all that. It pans a bit further and then you see mum and dad in the crowd. And they are totally going for it. And it's like, mum, so excited. She's passed out on the floor. And dad just checks that she's still breathing and then carries on. Because he's so excited. Because that's my boy. I'm with him. And that's the sense of excitement. And do we have that sense of excitement when we see Jesus? He says... I'm with him. He's not ashamed to call me his brother. I'm getting to know more about him, but I'm related to him, so I'm excited by what he's done. And it affects my life, and that's what the Spirit of God is revealing. Now, Terry Virgo, in his book, The Spirit-Filled Church, said, many praise God in a limited way because they've never spent time getting to know him or what he has done. And he adds, a time of worship is a fresh opportunity to get to know God. We can grow in faith as we declare glorious things about him and to him. And then he says also this, worshippers must be preoccupied with the object of their worship. And so the question comes again, what are we seeing? What are we preoccupied with? Are there certain things that the Spirit of God would just like to help us set aside. They might be good. They might be okay. They might not be. But they could just be a distraction. And we're no longer seeing something. Maybe appreciation that was once full and overflowing and vibrant over passage of time without being nurtured and fed has become vague again. Or maybe it's, a, it's, a, it's an appreciation that's kind of always been vague. Yeah, I, Jesus died on the cross. Uh, what's for tea? Um, well, the Spirit of God is preoccupied with worshipping Jesus. The Spirit of God is preoccupied with giving attention to our wonderful God and what he has done. 
And that leads to this overflow. This leads to a, a response. The only, it's the right response of being filled with the Spirit. It comes out in singing. Now, if our appreciation has become vague, then remember those words that Paul writes to the Ephesians. Go on being filled with the Spirit. God never told us to stop. So let's continue to seek his help. Let's continue to, to seek what it is to be filled with the Spirit. Let's, let's check our expectations and what we are believing will happen. When like today we get together, or like in core group we get together, or like when we're by ourselves and life is tough. John in Patmos, no carpet. Life uncomfortable. What's his, what is his expectation, however? It's on the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit. I was looking into heaven. It was like I could see in my mind's eye a door open in heaven. And I kind of heard God speaking to me. And then at once I was, I was in the Spirit. And I saw, I saw all of this. And it's, in, it's evoked in me worship that I couldn't previously have imagined. What I'm seeing is so rich, it's so wonderful, it's so deep, it's so varied. One song can't sum it up, actually. And I see Jesus dying for me on the cross, and I see how God created everything, and I see how he's in control of entire world history, and I see how he's coming again in glory, and there will be a completion to world history. I'm seeing all of that, and I'm, I'm seeing the church. I'm seeing something of what he's doing right now by the Spirit on the earth. Drawing people together from every tribe, tongue and language. And I've seen it. And you know what? It's changing me. It's changing the way I see my life, actually. It's changing the decisions I'm making. It's changing my priorities. It's changing my heart. I've got, there's something in here that's been unblocked again. And it's coming out. And I'm not, I'm not going to stop it. And I don't think I could if I could, if I tried. A vague appreciation just becoming a deep, overflowing fountain. Maybe for some, it's tricky to identify with being in the Spirit. And this message here is not for your discouragement, but rather to, to build you up. God doesn't want us to live a life which is just in the flesh. In just my own efforts and my own thoughts and my own ideas. He wants you to know what it is to be in the Spirit. And he doesn't just want you to live in the world. Just aware of hostility and difficulty and challenge and hardship and heartache and, and, uh, and temptation and all the rest of it. And the, oh, life in the world is just tough sometimes. Well, God has got an answer. Being in the Spirit. Word and Spirit nourishing us. Building us up. Now we can be offended or embarrassed. Well, I've been a Christian for so long. Um, but I'm not sure I know what this means. I'm not sure I've got many experiences I can talk of that would sound special. Um, not that I'm wanting to brag about it anyway. But Lord, I want to know more of what it means to be in the Spirit. You know, it's an incredibly good place to be. Humbling place to be, but a good place to be. As we worship God, that we just acknowledge our need of Him. We looked at that a little bit last week. When Jesus said, you know, apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, thank heaven then that Jesus has sent us his Holy Spirit so that we're in an age of the Spirit so that we can know what it means to be in the Spirit. It's not just us. It's not just me. It's not just my effort. 
trying to plod on through things with increasingly heavy feet and vague affection. It's, no, I was in the Spirit. This is John's example. He was a man of the Word. He knew Jesus. He'd walked with Jesus on the earth. He'd talked with Jesus. He'd had meals with Jesus. He'd reclined with Jesus. He'd, he'd learnt from Jesus. He'd observed him. He'd watched him. He'd listened to him. He'd seen him crucified. He'd seen him raised to life. John knew the Old Testament in an incredibly impressive way. It oozes out of what he writes. He writes some of the New Testament that we're reading right now. And at this point in his life, he is old, he's wise. He's a guy who's leading, he's mature. So he has a sphere of influence that incorporates at least seven churches throughout uh, Asia Minor. And what do we find him doing? What is his attitude towards the Spirit? I think John was very comfortable with saying, I need you. I need you, Holy Spirit. I'm not just relying on my intellect. I'm not just relying on kind of facts that I've learned. I'm not just relying um, on emotionalism to, to kind of or personality to kind of jolly me along. No, what I'm relying on and what I know that I really need and what I'm totally desperately dependent on, particularly in this cell, particularly right now when I can't even meet with other believers particularly what I'm desperate for is to commune with the Holy Spirit. Oh, and he's here. Desperately dependent. He's eager. He's looking forward. I wonder when the next time is going to be when, when it's like, oh, I've just been caught up. I've just been almost carried up. I've been lifted. And it's not, it's about more than just my own thoughts. It's about more than just my own kind of natural senses. Oh, God is at work in the Spirit. As John's example, it's there to encourage us and build us up in our personal life, in our corporate life together as a church, to be in the Spirit. Let's pray, and then we'll worship God.